Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to Seasons. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. June is Pride Month, and you likely heard voices, read stories, and saw posts on social media celebrating the contributions of folks in the LGBTQ community all month long. But stories, conversations, and celebrations in and around the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer communities are happening all year long. Ahead on Season, you'll hear from the co-founder of Dyke Beer about the importance of creating and preserving queer spaces where the community can support each other. And we talk with two co-founders of the Queer Food Foundation, a resource and platform for queer folks in the food industry. But first, we highlight three spaces in Connecticut that are created by and for LGBTQ people. They're safe spaces to eat, drink, and gather, where pride flags fly all year long. Our producer, Emily Cherish, knows these spots well, so she'll be our guide to these three hangouts with very different vibes, but one common theme. You can be yourself here. Let's go. Living in Connecticut as a gay person, I can personally attest to the rich bank of LGBTQ food makers, restaurant owners, and chefs who've created welcoming spaces for LGBT people in our state. 168 York Street Cafe, one of the oldest gay bars in Connecticut, has been welcoming LGBTQ people with open arms for more than 70 years. I'm really excited to visit this institution There's so much history here, and you can feel that walking in. The lights are dim, the long bar is more of a kitchen countertop than a weathered wood, and the walls are brick, matching the exterior, which has a classic New Haven brownstone feel, if you've ever walked around the city. York Street feels like that classic spot in every movie where two people are across the bar, and then they lock eyes, and then the rest is history. Joe Goodwin, owner of York Street, invites me to join him at the bar with the regular Tuesday night crowd. You'll hear the voice of Gary Scott in a moment. Gary has been coming here since 1979. First, here's Joe talking about York Street's history. I've been here for 30 years under my ownership, and I opened this place up in 1992. Prior to 1992, it was called the Pub Cafe. When you add up the years, I would think it, you're hitting around 70 years. Wow. Was it always a gay bar? It, well, back then, it was a gay bar, but you had to use, there was a, according to our older customers, there was an alleyway on the side of the building. It was a bar. All the people would enter from the front door, and all the gay men will open on the side of an alleyway to get to the back. When I first came in here, the restaurant was fine dining with tablecloths and, you know, now it's more casual pub fare, which goes with the students and everybody else. You know, when the when the pub was first here or around the corner where you want to quote, it was uh, gay bars are dominantly were male bars. And then during the transition period, that's when things start changing in the, I would say it started changing in the, what, the early 90s? Where now all of a sudden you weren't just called a, basically a men's bar. The word got out that no matter how different you are, when you come to York Street, you felt comfortable. That's how it started. When, you know, everybody was on 
online. You know, everybody thought they were going to find their love online. I think it took away from the bar and people start realizing that that hurt us for maybe three or four years that they finally found out that you're not going to find true love or meet anybody on the internet. People will be online saying on every site, I don't know what, grinder, scruff, buff, you name it, there are sites. <laughs> and people actually meet here in public and the person they're talking to and they were being sent a picture, they look nothing like the person they were meeting here. And I think that everyone caught on to that. So I don't know, is that still, those sites still popular, Gar? <laughs> I haven't had any luck. <laughs> if you want to roll it up, it's technology to change the world for the good and for the bad. I mean, I started coming here in 1979. We lost so many people with the AIDS crisis. And then to get a new generation to come in and uh, the internet was really uh, online dating and things. You used to have to go out on a certain night when everybody was gonna be out. You know, maybe there was a drink deal, or maybe it was leather night, or chiffon night, depending on what your peccadillo is. Can you tell us about some really special times that you remember? I have many. I think the the biggest one I still talk about is when we were all here. It was Monday meatloaf, um, and all of a sudden we're sitting at the bar, and all of a sudden Meryl Street walked in. Oh my God! And. I'm sitting at the end bar where I'm sitting right now. I'm looking at it. So oh, a drag queen on a Monday night, <laughs> just what I need. And go to find out it was Meryl Street. And she was brought over for my good friend that used to work at the theater across the street. It was Monday night meatloaf. That's always served with meatloaf. And she sat down and unbelievable. Men were going crazy over <laughs> her. They wanted it. But she just said to them very politely, you know, can I just eat my meal with my friends? I'd be more than happy to stay, answer questions, sign autographs. And that's exactly what happened. She had, she was here for a couple of hours and um, she had a wonderful time. And after that, she signed autographs. And that was my, I'm like, I was like blown away. What is like a typical evening here look like? What night? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> so Tuesday is just a really nice, relaxing night. We have always something going on on Thursdays, and then it just escalates into the weekend. Is it like a party on the weekend? What type of vibe? Now we're getting back to our drag shows. We're getting back to our, our DJs, and we're getting back to theme parties. But we're, you know, everybody knows in downtown New Haven, we're very seasonal. Yeah. You know, everybody's downtown. Um, then for the summer months, four months, everybody runs out of town. They go to the shoreline and we start kicking back in. Usually the second week of August when the students start coming back to college. That's 168 York Street Cafe owner Joe Goodwin and longtime patron Gary Scott. I'm jumping in here real quick because there's something I want you to know about Joe. It's never been enough for him to simply provide this safe, inclusive space for the queer community. He's found ways to give back to the community at large, mostly by throwing parties and giving the proceeds to organizations doing work he believes in. I'm always thinking about, like, what could we do for the community? Back in the, um, it had to be the 96 I started it, 97. I'm a firm believer that people really want to give and they just don't know how. Mm. So I made it easy for them. On Thursdays and Sundays during Beer Bash, I think beer was a dollar. Dollar, dollar fifty. I would charge a dollar at the door, and it was so stupid charging a dollar. And people just say, "Why are you charging a dollar?" Because it means a lot. Do you know? In the course of ten years, 
It lasted 10 years I did that for. We collected over $250,000. Don't tell the IRS. (laughs) But... I collected $250,000, just at dollars out the door. That's not counting. Um, once a year, I would do benefits for certain organizations that we raised. That was to be like $10,000 an event, just profit for those events. Why is that important to like give back like that? I think it's important to give back to anything. Yeah. And what I try to do is that just because... It, I'm a gay bar doesn't mean that I have to give every dollar to a gay community. I think that we should share wealth. But that's the whole thing, you know. Acceptance is strange. Acceptance is meaning that you just don't stay within your community. If you want acceptance, you have to go out to your community. Next, I want to take you to a chiller spot where I love to go for a cup of coffee. Molten Java in Bethel has become the go-to coffee shop in the LGBT community and the entire town as well. This quaint, colorful cafe smells of fresh coffee, baked cookies, and cinnamon hot chocolate. Happy customers sit by the windows, playing card games, reading books, and sipping their favorite drinks. Molten Java is truly a chill vibe. Before I sat down with the owner, Wendy Cahill, I asked the barista to tell me what they're making and why Molten Java is important to them. And this one's my favorite. It's a darker roast. Um, you can kind of see the oils with it. That's my favorite thing. What do you like about working here? If it wasn't for this place, I wouldn't have had like a queer community growing up. I get to see everyone in town. It tastes really good. <laughs> Thank you so much. Welcome to season. Hi. When did you decide to open Molten Java? Molten Java opened in 2003. I always loved coffee. Neither of my parents drink it. I started drinking it in high school when I was an exchange student. Then I moved to San Francisco and learned to be a roaster. And that's when I really fell in love with, you know, the process from the bean all the way to to the cup. What's like really exciting about coffee as a process to you? You know, I think it's probably less about the coffee than it is about what coffee houses mean and have always meant. From their inception in Turkey, they've been a place where people get together and, you know, like debate and meet each other and uh, sort of a home away from home kind of an environment. And you feel that right when you walk in here. That's, yeah. I mean, that's our number one directive, sort of, is to make sure that people feel like they're at home here and that, you know, we know them. I have the friendliest staff. You really do. (laughs) You really do. I know my answer to this because I've been coming here since I was in high school. But what kind of things do you do to make people feel like this is a space for everyone? I mean, it's really what happens when you walk in the door. Yeah. We get to be in contact with this completely diverse sort of um, population of people. Suburbs, maybe not diverse in some ways, but um, it's, you know, people from all different walks of life and different kinds of jobs. I probably less than other people because I'm a lot of times very distracted, but, um, (laughs) but, you know, asking people's names, asking what they do and... um, how they are, and like clearly wanting real answers. There's a difference, I think, between just saying, how are you? 
and like really know how are you yeah <laughs> like <laughs> let's talk about it yeah <laughs> you said something just now about suburbs maybe not being so diverse yeah but when you come here you see the pride flags you see all of the visual symbols of people are really yeah, really welcome here black Lives matter signs yeah and and we probably have more diversity in in terms of um race gender uh, sexuality than most places. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm unapologetically queer uh, and kind of always have been, even, you know, going to WestCon in the 80s. So that was a really big deal for me to make sure that that was part of what this town can be unapologetically queer. <laughs> I mean, there's pride flags everywhere. Um, and there, it's just ally heavy. I love that. I want to pivot a little bit to the coffee and to what is served here because it's such an impressive menu. The menu just keeps like it keeps growing and growing as there's more baristas and it's like a barista family that each one of them adds their own kind of spin or their own drinks. So but the coffee we roast it here in little roasters. It's roasted in a different kind of a roaster than you know, most people are used to. So it's a fluid bed roaster, which is sort of like a popcorn popper. It runs hot air through the beans, and they hop around in, in a little canister. There is a different flavor profile. It's pretty noticeable, actually. Um, the beans tend to keep the oil inside of them a little bit more, so they're a little smoother. Mm. The signature, I guess, would be the Turkish which is something that's really popular and you can't get anywhere else. And it's fresh ground spices and vanilla. I try as hard as I can to integrate as much fresh ingredients mm. as possible. There's no chemicals put on the beans or anything like that. So people can make their own choices about what kinds of flavors. We probably have about 50 at this point. <laughs> we keep adding them. <laughs> People will be like, I want lavender, and we're just compelled. <laughs> yep. <laughs> People say this place impacts them a lot. I mean, that this is the heart of the town for them. I have people ask me, you know, older people who are queer too, like, where do people go anymore? Especially with, like, online dating and this kind of stuff, in it, which isn't the same thing as having a community, I think. So, yeah, where do you go? <laughs> I guess places like this. That was Wendy Cahill, owner of Molten Java in Bethel. Our final stop on this tour is a place where folks in the LGBTQ community go to let loose, have fun, and perhaps dance on a table or two. I'm at the queer bar Trevi Lounge in Fairfield. It's 9 p.m., drinks are flowing, music's playing, and people are starting to dance. I pull aside DJ Edgewood and bartender Nick Olson Navarro for a chat before the night gets too crazy. So how long have you both been here at Trevi? Probably five years. Pretty much since I turned 21, uh, you know, you're gay, you're looking for a bar, you know, you check it out and this was it, so. So you waited until you were 21 to come here? Yeah, I did. Really? I know, I did. I, I'm a good boy. <laughs> Do you remember those first like couple times you went here when you were 21? I remember dancing on the dance floor and it was packed and it was liberating. You know, that's one thing when a lot of kids, when they get to 21 and hopefully the kids coming up now, they can experience this. But like you get to dance and be open and everybody's, you know, egging everybody on like, yeah, you got this. And it was a beautiful experience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember 
being here when we used to have karaoke in that corner and just getting on top of the bar and taking our shirts off and just like dancing shirtless while people were singing. It was fine. Like, it's still fine. Um, But the thought of doing that now, I'm just like, I'm too tired. I know. I'm like, (laughs) I'm not taking on my shirt. (laughs) When I see like the younger generation now coming in, like acting a fool, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh God. I'm like, I can't believe I had the energy to like do all that stuff. Right. Now I'm like, I want to be home in bed by like 10. (laughs) Yes. Now that I'm behind the bar, I kind of see what I used to see on this side of the bar, but I'm seeing it on the other side. So it's kind of like a cycle repeating itself. Same like silly things that I used to do and my friends used to do when we used to come here. Now I'm seeing on the other side of the bar with my patrons. And I love that because I'm like not that old. I'm just 30. (laughs) But I'm like, wow, I remember. It's bringing me back in time. I'm like, "I, I used to do that. I used to, you know. What? Be on that stripper <laughs> pole and like take my shirt off and like, you know, but now I'm seeing the younger generation doing it too. As I was doing some research about Trevi, I obviously went on the Yelp reviews. I came across one that said, if you've ever felt like an outsider at other LGBTQ establishments, this is the place for you. And how I interpret that is like, this place includes everybody. Can you speak to this a little bit? I love that because we actually do. I think we're very open to anyone in the community and not even just like our community. Like we're also open to our allies as well. Um, as long as they feel safe and we feel safe and comfortable, like yeah. everyone's welcome. Like Wednesday nights, we have Wacky Wednesdays and it's just kind of like an open stage night. Um, you can see anything from like comedians to like dancers to drag performers. You'll see anywhere from like, you know, people in their like early 20s to like, they're like mid 60s yeah. like it's, it's just a specific culture it's always been that way i've always felt that culture here it just feels very like you know talk to people say hi whatever it's not very like um clicky i don't know yeah you walk through those doors and you're just you're walking into like your family's house like everyone is just family everyone knows everyone um, which is good and bad. There's always some type of drama in any family. There's always that weird moment. There's always the great moments. It's all everything. Some of the most creative and memorable food and drinks I've had at restaurants, I learned after the fact, were prepared by lesbian or gay chefs and bartenders. People in my community are experimental, thoughtfully creative, and always push boundaries. And I think it shows in the food and drink they make. I asked DJ Edgewood and Nick if that's true for them. Even when I DJ, like, there is some, like, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to everything that we do. And I appreciate that. You know, like, I know when Nick makes me a drink, like, there's always a little something extra that I'm like, oh, I I love Nick for that. You know, it's not so clean cut. This is what you get. Whatever. It's just like, you know, like a little flair, a little extra something. And that's the same thing when I'm doing music. It's like, I give you an extra 10% extra of of a little, you know, flair. Yeah, like, you know. Sometimes I'm sarcastic. Sometimes right. I like joke around with right. like my customers. Sometimes I'm like, this is what you order, but like, are you okay if I like spice it up a little bit? And like, I'll just like throw something extra that I'm like, I don't even know if it's gonna taste good, but you know what? Here, we're, we're gonna try it. And like, even if it, it doesn't, goes, like, still lit. <laughs> <laughs> still in the experience, you know? <laughs> I think we are as a community like very creative and very open to like trying things and not afraid to just like push things a little bit more. I remember when I would come here, the word I would associate with Trevi is pure fun, like really having fun. Can you speak to that? 
I agree. It, it really is fun. The lighting is cool. That and the stripper pole, that must be, that must stay. The amount of people who jump on that pole, you know? Because Trevi, people really let loose and, and misbehave in the best way. You know, if you ever go to a lot of like straight spaces where you see a lot of straight people, they're always packed to the rim. But it's interesting because whenever I go to those places, I think, well, it's packed. You know, the money's flowing. Everybody's there, but nobody's dancing. Or everybody's uncomfortable. The girls are like running away from the guys and the guys are like, I'm gonna get her tonight. You know, and it's very toxic. You know, I think somebody stole my card one time. <laughs> and you know, that was the one place, but you know, when I come to gay bars and you know, here in general too, I feel like people dance. You know, security's usually lighter. It's not in this intense security where they're like, you know, beating you down and like you gotta dress a certain way before you come up in here. It's usually just, this is our time to let loose. Because I remember when I was young gay, coming out, and, you know, all week I go through microaggressions and all these weird things that I have to deal with, you know, and you see your friends, and some of them not even out the closet yet, and you come to the bar and you go, I'm ready. You know, I got my cute outfit on, I'm drinking, I'm feeling sassy, and they just go for it and I every now and then I'll see a group of, of gays spread out through the bar they're young they're just coming out and they are living their best life and I'm like I'm doing this for you this is why we do this is because we remember being in their footsteps and being that kind of person and I think that creates that energy and you know, all that misery that we go through and all the troubles that we hear here's where we are going to have fun going to a heterosexual establishment I still have fun I still feel comfortable and with my friends but I don't feel the way that I do when I'm at a gay establishment yeah. where like I feel like I can literally like just like let loose be myself I don't have to watch my back I don't have to pretend to act a certain way because oh god forbid there's someone here that doesn't quote-unquote believe with my quote-unquote lifestyle like you know I have to like act apart I have to like blend in here like no one blends in but we're still like we don't have that spotlight on us like oh wow look at that guy over there acting like a girl or being weird or dressing weird it's like here it's like I can kiki with my friends <laughs> and I don't feel like I'm getting like a spotlight on me like wow look at that big guy over there doing that like, that's weird right <laughs> You just heard DJ Edgewood and bartender Nick Olson Navarro from Trevi Lounge and our producer, Emily Cherish, giving you a tour of 168 York Street Cafe in New Haven, Molten Java Coffee Shop in Bethel, and Trevi Lounge in Fairfield. We'll have links to all three on our show page at ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, we talk with a craft brewer about the inspiration behind Dyke Beer and why creating and preserving queer spaces is important. That's where you can find romance. That's where you can find queer family. That's where you can find queer friends. That's where you can just sit with the book and be your queer self. This is Season. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. This week, we're talking about safe spaces for people in the LGBTQ community to eat, drink, and gather. And we're shining a light on drink makers in the community we want you to know about. Our next guest, Sarah Hellenquist, is an activist and the brewer behind Dyke Beer. She and her co-founder, Loretta Chung, felt that great craft beer was missing from the lesbian bar scene. And they're hoping to fund more dedicated queer spaces. So they created their own brewing company. You can find Dyke Beer at bars all over New York City. Sarah Hollenquist, welcome to Season. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I love beer. It's fantastic. Me too. Dyke isn't just the name of your beer. It's an identity you and your co-founder fully embrace. Can you talk to us about the importance you put on reclaiming the word and what it means to you and other queer people who identify with it? Absolutely. Uh, To start off with, a lot of straight cisgender people ask if they can even say the name of the beer. And yes, you can. You can call it Dyke Beer. Uh, You can put Dyke Beer on your menu. And Dyke basically is an old word that was used in the 1800s to describe particularly butch or masculine presenting women as a slur. Later, we reclaim this word just like we reclaim the word queer now. When we talk about the word dyke, it's an umbrella term for a lot of people. It can mean lesbians. It can mean queer women. It can mean non-binary folks. It can mean trans women. Even trans men who have existed as females for a long time have still identified as dykes. They said, hey, I've been a dyke for 60 years, and you know what? I'm still going to be dyke now as a trans man. So there's a huge group of people besides calling it lesbian beer that we're including. And so it's, it's much more about the community as a whole and kind of away from the big G when we talk about the LGBTQ plus identities that we have so much focus, I think, on gay cisgender men in particular. There's so many gay male bars. For example, there's over 45 gay male bars in New York City, while there are only three for dykes or lesbians in New York City. So there's a huge difference in, you know, space and visibility. I'm a woman, a cisgender woman. My my business partner is non-binary identified. And so we're really unusual figures in the beer community. Only about 5% of women are beer owners and 0.2% are queer in general for the craft beer U.S. community. That's interesting. I had no idea that there was such a discrepancy in in the amount of bars like that. That's crazy. I had no idea. A lot of it is visibility and letting people know about the disappearing space. And sometimes when we talk about space, it can be in books, it can be in film, it can be in art and music. We don't really see a lot of people who are bisexual women, queer women, sapphic, however you identify, really taking the stage or taking up space. And so this even includes physical brick and mortar bar space that we really don't have a lot left. We're very aware of this issue that in 1980, there used to be 200 lesbian or dyke bars throughout the U.S. This now has changed, according to Lesbian Bar Project, to about 22 bars. 
we really do need um, another space. And we'd love to bring a Dyke Beer Brewery to uh, New York City one day. Wow. That's awesome to hear. As a man who likes beer and a chef who likes to drink, any brewery I'm in, let's go. This sounds fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about the early days during the pandemic. Some food people and drink people did become inspired to create products and businesses and build awareness around their causes kind of during this time. Talk about how Dyke Beer became a thing. It was a time in COVID where I think if you are in your apartment, you're sitting there with yourself Absolutely. You're thinking about, do I like my life? Do I like my apartment? Do I like my partner? Do I like my job? Do I like, you know, this and that? And so I think a lot of changes happened because people were able to be really reflective. And Loretta and I both, before Dyke Beer, we really were volunteers and then activists and organizers for this queer pop-up that would happen in straight bars. And we would have all sorts of queer artists that weren't normally hired by um, straight bars. And so it was very volunteer-run, homegrown. And we were like, well, how do we advance this project? And so Dyke Beer was kind of born from Dyke Bar Takeover, that we got more people, especially straight people who might not have thought about our rights, to actually, you know, come to our website and kind of see all the information we were throwing out there about the lack of lesbian space or transgender rights being in jeopardy. This was really a new way of activism for us. We really love working with the queer community and we really love um, having this platform and this thing of queer joy. Dyke beer just (laughs) seems to make people so happy. The label seems to make people laugh. We get so many photographs of uh, people's tags on Instagram. We've seen Dyke beer at weddings and engagements and in these like spaces where people are thriving, which is great. It doesn't have to be like this narrative all the time that being queer is so sad, being transgender, it's going to be the worst. It's like, no, let's take that back and let's be empowered. Let's have something that's just about joy and fun. I think, too, having the bars is so important because that's where you can find romance. That's where you can find queer family. That's where you can find queer friends. That's where you can just sit with the book and be your queer self if you have to be a fake straight self all day for work. And then you can just be your true self in one space in the day. Yeah, I want to just go back to those takeovers you guys were doing, those pop-ups. Sure. One of the things I think is important to know is that you kind of welcomed everybody to that. We won't turn anybody away, but these are safe spaces. So it's only if somebody is not making the safe space. And this is an interesting conversation because sometimes we within the queer community don't make each other safe. We have misogyny. We have transphobia in our community. We have, you know, white supremacy. We have all sorts of things. So if even within our community, um, you know, you're harassing somebody or making somebody uncomfortable, uh, you got to go. Overall, um, we haven't had too many problems, and I think everybody knows when you walk in a space called Dyke Bar Takeover or now a Dyke Beer Party, uh, what that's going to be about. Well, how do you go from the Dyke Bar Takeovers and the pop-ups to the beer? How does that transition between the two? I was a home brewer uh, briefly, so the idea was we wanted to make something, like a bar, an alcohol, something, and we thought beer was really a drink that was accessible also to the working class people could buy for, you know, seven or eight bucks. And a lot of the beer in our bars, honestly, as a beer drinker myself, was a lot of PBR, a lot of Bud Light. (laughs) And, you know, really, it was a new education for a lot of folks in our community to come to craft. There are some places where, you know, craft was not seen ever. And so really, it was a new community and new education. So it's funny, because now I feel like anybody who's dyke identified now knows what like a goza is or a saison. They can explain it A to Z. And so I love that, like, enjoy this new, uh, you know, field of tastes and and, uh, 
you know, definitely learn about it. Of course, you guys want to make great beer because great beer is delicious. Who doesn't love good beer? But you and your co-founder Loretta are change makers. What is your larger mission? I think our larger mission is one to actually create the physical brick and mortar space. I think because we do have such a lack of spaces. When we think of the enormous amount of bars, either in New York City or the country or the world in general, and just how few there are for this particular community that we're serving and talking about, there needs to be more of that space. And then we have really started out as event planners. And so we can have queer artists, queer chefs, folks that aren't seen as much, maybe in the straight community, We can highlight them, spotlight them, and really give them a a place to shine, having that physical entity. I think also after COVID, we really understood why physical space was so important. I think people really missed it after COVID. And they were like, wow, my bar is going to go. You know, like I miss just seeing people. I miss just dancing to the music. It's all so important. It's like these small micro things that are so important overall to like somebody's happiness, somebody's day. Let's talk about some of the characteristics of dyke beer. Like I saw on the website, the Australian sparkling ale. And as a beer drinker, I was like, Australian sparkling ale, that's not like ringing a bell. Tell me about that. Absolutely. So I actually um, currently am going to Cornell University to finish up a brewing program. So very cool. Believe me, Loretta and I take the ingredients very seriously. It was funny because we did this February event with all the New York City brewers. We're finally able to be part of the guild of uh, NYC brewers. Oh, awesome. A lot of like their clients had never seen us before. And so they see this like huge blue flag with a dog and cat playing pool and tight beer. And they're like, what's this? But it was funny because this was one of the first events we had with like a lot of straight cisgender men. And no kidding, about 90% of the guys who tried the beer, we had the Saison and Mars and Lager there, said, oh, I'm surprised this is good. Uh, Why? And I would say, why are you surprised this is good, one? And two, why did you come over here if you thought this was bad? And so it's this idea, I don't know that this is just a marketing campaign, but no, I'm letting everybody here on NPR and Seasoned, everybody know that we really care about the ingredients. We really think about the beers start to finish. We only have four in two years. I mean, I am a perfectionist, neat freak. Loretta tastes the beer as well. We really work on these things A to Z. So the Saison... It's our basic Belgian golden ale. It's got a really interesting yeast that goes through a cycle. Um, so it has notes of uh, pepper at sometimes, of bubblegum at sometimes. Like it goes through like this interesting thing every month. And so I think it's a delight just to open up like on a patio and you have like this golden ale that has a little bit more characteristics than your traditional pale ale. It's a little funkier, right? Exactly. Exactly. Like the yeast is more complex. So like as a result, this yeast kind of does things in the flavor that makes it a little bit more exciting to drink. Beer, while simple to make, right? It's not hard to make. If you think about it, it's pretty basic. But the things that you use can really change those flavors. And the different types of yeast and yeast strains really make a difference in flavor tremendously, don't they? They absolutely do. And the reason why breweries, when they're sanitizing to the level of hospitals, it's because of the yeast. And so the ingredients in there, of course, 90% of beer is water. You have to make sure your water's clean. You have some sort of malt or cereal. So usually it is a barley, but it can be rice. It can be oats. You've seen these ingredients in different beers. And then especially with the gluten allergies, we're getting more away from barley. Basically, the barley acts as a food for the yeast. The yeast is the little microbial guys who actually end up creating the alcohol. So they feed off the yeast and then the alcohol is reproduced. But yeast, when you talk to some brewers, especially ones who really like 
Belgium beer, that's what you're actually tasting in the nuances. And so when these beers are sometimes described as like citrusy or lemony, but there's no lemon addition, there's no, no none of this. Mm-mm. It's usually the least characteristics, especially in these very innocuous looking, simply made beers. When you see that people really, really love, you know, these sort of like Belgian Goldens, these sort of trapeze tales, they're usually really liking the taste of of the yeast inside them. And I know yeast sounds like a weird word to use or like it's dirty or strange, but in beer, it's really like the magical part of beer for us. All of those things make a difference in flavor, whether the temperature, the yeast, the barleys, all of those things can make a difference. Hey, before we go, we got to talk a little bit about your can art. Okay. It features these cute kind of cartoony dogs and cats playing pool and hanging out. Is there a fun like background story behind that you can tell us? Oh, we love our designer, Olive Primo. We go really back and forth with the designs. These are hand-painted. We think about every single color nuance. We've had different animals for every single can and different ideas for every single one. That's great. A lot of our customers, they really feel like they're either the dog or the cat, which is funny, or like they really identify with the animals on the can. We kind of wanted these like representations of the queer community without being human. So the animals kind of worked out for us. And most most dykes either like cats or dogs. So and and they're playing pool because a lot of our bars traditionally do have pool tables. So we that's why we chose that as an activity. <laughs> I love it. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> our traditional Saison can, it actually has a transgender colors on it. So it's this like hot blue and then this like kind of pink on the bottom. The label art we have is actually from the old zines. It was cut out from one of these label makers. So, you know, that's like a tradition in the 90s. We really had zines that we made up and then we would like share amongst the queer community because there wasn't enough articles on us or health or uh, different, you know, topics related to queers. So that was a homage to that time. You got to see these cans. They're absolutely adorable. I can't wait to see all of them and how many different ones come out. Sarah Hollenquist, we appreciate you taking some time and hanging out with us here your own season. Thank you, Chef. I appreciate being here. <laughs> that was Sarah Hallenquist. She's an activist and the co-founder of Dyke Beer in New York City. If you want to see some of that fun can art Sarah just described, you'll find it on our show page. We'll also have a link to Dyke Beer's website so you can learn more about their beer, their mission, and the pop-up events they host. Go to ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, you'll learn about the work the Queer Food Foundation is doing to support their community. So we're trying to bridge gaps in multiple spaces that involve our community members on all aspects of food. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. So far, we've learned about historic and beloved safe spaces for people in the LGBTQ community to eat, drink, and gather. Next, we want to shine a light on a new organization, the Queer Food Foundation. They are a collective with initiatives focused around food access, justice, and community organizing. They also advocate for more inclusive spaces and opportunities for queer folks in food. Their major initiative, Queer Food Fund, nourishes those impacted by food insecurity in the Black, queer, and trans community. Funds donated through Venmo and Cash App go directly to adults in these communities who need immediate assistance across the United States. Our producer, Emily Cherish, joins Chef Plum for this conversation about the Foundation's work. 
Chef Vanessa Parrish and Gabrielle Leonard are co-founders of the Queer Food Foundation, a collective that serves as a resource and platform for queer folks in the food and beverage industry. Vanessa, Gabrielle, welcome to Seasoned. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. I'm really excited. <laughs> Vanessa, you're a pastry chef, and Gabrielle, you are an activist. So just to get a little bit of background, how did you come together to become co-founders of the Queer Food Foundation? And can you describe the collective's mission for us? Sure. This kind of was a passion project started from Gabrielle when she was like getting her master's and she wanted to expand this idea to people in the community uh, head forward. So she reached out myself, uh, Mavis Shea Sanders and Yoni Bilu, our other two co-founders, and we kind of hit the ground running with a couple other folks. I think the mission was the first thing. And then like, how do we achieve this mission was the second question. I had this idea, but I knew I didn't really know how to get it started. And I knew that if it was going to be community centered and focused, that it had to include people from all walks of life and intersections of the queer community. I'd been following Vanessa for a really long time because I saw that she was doing um, work with black queer adolescent teens and giving them free cooking classes. And so I reached out. I moved to Los Angeles. I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina. I moved to Los Angeles mm-hmm. because I had many executive chefs say, I don't hire black women. I don't hire women. I don't hire gays. To my face, not hiring you. Um, or as soon as they find out that I was queer, chivalry of just camaraderie would go out the door. Um, and so for me, I was like, I need to be in a workspace where this stuff doesn't matter and I can just freaking cook. I can just have a good culture and we can just love food together. Um I think it's very situational sometimes when we're talking about acceptance, because if you're in spaces where there is kind of a curated culture that's already been there in bigger cities, it's an underlying thing to really worry about. Whereas places in smaller, well, in my case, more conservative spaces, that is something that is always your thought process. I didn't even out myself until I probably had been there six months just to make sure I was comfortable enough to even say something. I'd love to talk more about that mission piece because we saw on your website, the Queer Food Foundation provides an intersectional, equitable food system where queer folks are represented and thriving. Can we talk about that thriving piece a bit more? (laughs) Like, what really does that mean? Yeah, I think thriving is the best word that you pointed out because it's one thing for it to work. It's another thing for it to flourish, right? And so that's where that thriving comes in. We're not just another organization that's just doing stuff just to say, oh, we're supporting. We wanted to elevate people in that process. So we have our Queer Food Fund that we do every um, February, which is specifically a mutual aid to support Black, queer, and trans folks. Like money in straight to their pockets to face food insecurity, right? So we have those and then corporate sides. We also hold corporations accountable and we teach them how to make equitable, less toxic work environments. So we're trying to bridge gaps in multiple spaces that involve our community members on all aspects of food. And so when you face those challenges, it's one thing just to go, okay, here you go, bye. You know, that's where the flourishing part comes in. We're taking that, we're up in the ante and we're kind of holding on to them like okay we're not just going to give you something like now that you're a part of us we're going to keep growing with you so gabrielle let's talk a little bit about the current state of food insecurity within the queer community help our listeners understand what the problem queer food foundation is working to solve yeah so food insecurity um it's actually just one of the things that we're hoping to help um eradicate but queer and trans folk especially those at the intersections of 
Black, Indigenous, people of color are disproportionately um, affected by it. And so there's a lot of organizations out there, such as the Alley Forney Center, um, God's Love We Deliver, that are helping combat this. But I think that what Queer Food Foundation is trying to do from a different level is bring in small grassroots efforts, such as mutual aid for larger organizations. We've ensured through our fiscal sponsor that we can literally get money in and then get it directly to the people on the ground. We have a fund of money that if we meet people and they they're message us and they say, I need to pay groceries. I have no money for groceries this week. We have those fundings to send them directly, cash app, Venmo, et cetera, actual cash to give to them, no questions asked. Um, to support and combat that directly. Um, kind of like what Gabrielle was saying, that a lot of big organizations that do this awesome work, it sometimes is hard to reach people interpersonally that quickly. There's a process that is involved. So when you are facing a food insecurity like that, sometimes you don't have time for that process. Um, if you have groceries, you have children to feed, families to support, it's kind of an immediate type of need. And so we want to be able to support that. That's so fantastic because it literally it's you think about it, there's all these organizations and places that you could go and get government money and all these things, but it takes weeks and time and that's not helping right now. I love that you just Venmo. Here you go. Here's some money. Boom. Done. And I want to say, like, we're both not food insecurity experts, but I think that we listen to our community and we try and do what we think is best. It's nice to have a choice, right? If you Venmo them $100 for groceries, they can go out and buy their groceries rather than going to a food pantry and picking up bread, canned food, whatever they have. You know, these people are people and they deserve to have a choice as well. I know in the gay community, in the queer community, gay, queer, all these different identities mean different things to different people. So what does queer, what does that term mean? I think honestly queer, because exactly like you said, it means so many things. It is an umbrella term because under the queer umbrella, there can be lesbian, there can be bi, there can be gay, there can be trans, there can be asexual, there can be intersex. Like there's so much that embodies queer. I think queer is more of like a fluidity, right? You can be this and that, or you can be this and not that. And I think really when we're saying Queer Food Foundation, we want to be encompassing of all different types of gender and sexual identities and people who have been historically excluded. One of the foundation's mantras is queer all year. How does the foundation keep the focus on queer issues and stories and celebrate queerness all year long? <laughs> this is kind of like my like little baby in our organization. We saw an influx of support following the George Floyd everything happening that summer and months later it was gone and it was a big eye-opener for I think everyone to recognize that these operations our support our community the type of awareness that we're trying to raise is not seasonal <laughs> it's not temporary these are the same people that face same issues literally every single day so for us we really wanted to have Queer All Year to let people know that we don't just exist in June. We started the Queer All Year program because we wanted to make sure that if we worked with businesses and corporations that wanted to highlight us, especially in June, that we made it very well aware that we need you to help us and work with us some other time in the year. It doesn't have to be all 11 months, but it should be in your radar that don't just call us because of a performative type of, you know, rainbow politics type of thing. 
There are people right now listening, thinking, I want to help. So what can people do to support the queer community busting their butts right now in food and beverage? I would say start local, right? Because you don't know who is right next door that needs your help. So even if you see, which I know a lot of businesses now, like they'll, they'll post where queer owned or operated or pride flags, you know, ask them, like, can we buy gift cards? You know, um, especially right now, buying gift cards and giving them out to friends and things like that gives them money right immediately in their pockets, you know, to support mm-hmm. and keep that business open. Keep the conversation going. Engagement, especially in social media, is very important. So just getting the word out is even just the smallest thing is so impactful. Um, and then also reach out to us. You know, we're, we do a lot of things and we're trying to go further than just, you know, the bigger cities and the coast. We're trying to get down to the Midwest. We're trying to get to the South. So any ways that people want to reach out to us and say like, hey, I know an organization that's in my city that's looking for more outreach, you know, let's partner up, you know. Right. It doesn't take a lot to like show your support, like us on Instagram, follow us, check out our website. Um, we have a donate button across all of our platforms and your money will be going towards the different programming, such as the Queer Food Fund. We're working on a queer food database um, and helping people on the ground. Like if you are in our area, New York City, Los Angeles, just reach out to us. We'll hop on a Zoom with you. We'll meet you for a coffee. We want to hear what you're doing. <laughs> Well, I just followed you on Instagram. Yay. <laughs> Thanks so much. Uh, Vanessa Gabrielle, thank you so much. And we hope to see you soon. Thank, thank you. you. I really appreciate it. That was Chef Vanessa Parrish and Gabrielle Lennart, two of the co-founders of Queer Food Foundation. You can find out more about the Queer Food Fund and other ongoing projects at their website, queerfoodfoundation.org. You can also find them on Instagram, at Queer Food Foundation. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Dorian Aiken, Katie Talarski, Emily Cherish, and Catrice Claudio. Emily Cherish did all the heavy lifting on this episode. Our summer interns are Anya Grodowski and Mira Raju. To keep up with the latest on Season, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on Twitter. Or follow the hashtag SeasonedCT on all platforms. And hey, go to ctpublic.org slash contest to find information about our Culture in the Kitchen contest. Listeners can share a family recipe with us for a chance to win a prize. And you decide the winner. Good luck. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can catch past episodes of Seasoned on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and never miss our conversations with people making great food and drink in our state and beyond. See you next week. Thank you.